Thank you to the Gerrits family for that. Uh, I was privileged to get uh, Ben singing me a solo on my birthday, so um, it's wonderful to see the gifts that God has been given, being used uh, from an early age for the Lord. Well, could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54? Uh, Just turn there so long, we won't read it right now, we're going to come to that portion of God's Word uh, in, a, in a few minutes as we work our way through that section of God's Word today. On, on Thursday night and Friday morning, we considered Act 1 of God's great drama as we looked together at the events of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in both of those two services, uh, and again this morning, you would have seen that we've relied quite heavily on the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 as Isaiah described to us 700 years before the events, not just the the details of the physical death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but actually more importantly, Isaiah revealed to us the theological substance of what the death of Jesus would accomplish, namely satisfaction through substitution. I just realized I've left my little clicker here. Um, Apologies for that. Just get the, there we go. So, so today uh, we're going to be coming to, to move on to consider the results of the resurrection. Now, as much as Isaiah 53 is possibly the, the clearest passage in the whole of Scripture to help us understand the, the details of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, in other words, how our sins can be forgiven by a holy God, by God transferring our sin, our guilt to Christ on the cross, and then he took our punishment, our condemnation, so that we might be forgiven and receive the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah helps us to gain an incredible insight into those theological truths 700 years before the events of the cross and before the, the New Testament expansion of that more fully. But what we did not consider on Friday is that Isaiah also makes it clear that Jesus' death was not the end, but rather the beginning of something new. So please just look back a few verses for me at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 to 12. Look at what Isaiah says. After describing to us the, the death of the suffering servant, he then says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to death. But this same suffering servant now will will see. He, He will prolong. He will prosper. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, that's his death, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he, that is Christ, shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes present tense intercession for the transgressors. So these verses make it abundantly clear that the servant, the suffering servant of of God, did not stay dead. 
but he rose again to life, conquering death. On Good Friday, we considered that Jesus conquered sin. On Easter Sunday, we remember that he conquered death. And ever since that very first Resurrection Sunday, Jesus continues to live. He continues to reign over all things, and he lives, as Isaiah says, to make intercession for all who put their faith in him. And so today, on this Resurrection Sunday of 2021, we're going to be considering Act 2 of God's great drama, this unfolding drama of God's redemption. And we're going to consider today the results of the resurrection. What exactly did Christ's death, but particularly today his resurrection, what did it achieve for you and I who believe in him? Now, Cliff has already uh, read the historical account of the resurrection uh, for us from John's gospel. And and in actual fact, the, the rest of the New Testament, from Acts all the way to Revelation, is really the unfolding implications of the resurrection of Jesus. If you think I'm perhaps overstating the importance of the resurrection, listen to how Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to have been misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, Paul says they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. So the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential to everything we believe as Christians. And in order to explore this morning just a few of the implications of the resurrection for our lives today, we're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 54, to the section immediately following chapter 53, and to see again some wonderful prophetic insights into the results of the suffering servant's resurrection. What did rising from the dead of this suffering servant accomplish for, for you and for me? So, Please can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open in Isaiah 54. The reading's not going to come up on the screen because we're going to be working our way through this passage. And uh, could I just encourage you again that uh, when you come to church, please come with your Bibles and come with them ready to study the text. Uh, Yes, it's my job or whoever else is preaching to, to expound the word through preaching, but our job is to take the text and to present what it says to you. And so really just encourage you to keep your Bibles open, make notes in your Bibles, underline. Uh, this is God's Word to us, and we want to digest it. And it's your job to examine uh, that I am handling it faithfully, and you can only do that if you've got it before you. So chapter 54 follows on directly from chapter 53 to explain to God's people A people who we'll see in a moment had gone through a bleak time spiritually, who had suffered greatly under the hand of God's divine discipline. 
to explain to them what the resurrection of this chosen one, the suffering servant, had accomplished for them as his people. And he does this by way of three illustrations or, or three images. And so in the first place this morning, we see that the resurrection accomplished a fruitful family. Let's read together from verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will inhabit the desolate cities. So we start here to see a very clear picture of the world without Christ. And the picture is one of a barren woman or a city which is desolate. In, in ancient culture, barrenness was considered to be a sign of God's displeasure and a condition which in their culture brought great shame and sadness. We see this many times throughout the Old, Old Testament. A, a, a desolate city was the evidence that a people group had been ravaged by either war or plague. And so here we are given a very vivid picture of the, the state of Israel, barren and desolate as a nation in their spiritual decay and rejection of God. And it's not hard to see that condition in our own lives too, spiritual barrenness and desolation. This comes about when we walk in the light of our own wisdom, when we reject the clear teachings of God's word in our lives, when we persist in unrepentant disobedience, and when we ignore the many great promises that God has given to us. And yes, when we start to fall into this spiritual decline, this, this barrenness, this desolation, we may be able to fool each other for a while. We may even fool ourselves for a season. But eventually it gets, it gets brought out into the light this spiritual backsliding into barrenness and desolation. Well, God comes to his people in this state with wonderful good news of encouragement because of the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and what his death in chapter 53 and his resurrection at the end of that chapter has accomplished. We see that God will turn those who trust in him into a fruitful family. Look at the result of the cross. It's one of great joy in verse 1. There's a bursting forth into singing. Why? Because God will bring life. God will bring abundant life where there was previously none. What we have here is a, a picture of God's people, a picture that is finally fulfilled in, in the New Testament church, in us, being referred to as a fruitful family with many children, and this family will not be a stagnant family, it will not shrink, it will grow, and it will break out of all the constraints which it previously had limited it. The picture here is really one of a small rural community, people living in tents, and God says they must get ready, they must take a leap of faith to expand their tents, to move out the tent pegs, to hang longer curtains, to put stronger stakes into the ground, because the people of God are going to grow. 
And they must not hold back because God is going to add to their numbers daily those who are being saved. What a wonderful fulfillment of this prophecy is seen on the the day of Pentecost. And really every day since then across the world over the course of history as the church of Jesus Christ continues to grow and grow. The tent of the family of God is being stretched and expanded as God adds people to his nation from every tribe and and language and nation across the globe. I just love verse 3. Think about this from the perspective of the, the limited geographic footprint of God's people in ancient Israel. And then look at what God says in verse 3. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will inhabit desolate cities. Isn't this amazing to think that you and I here today, we are part of this prophetic fulfillment. Oh, that God would be pleased to continue to do this work of Isaiah 54 verse 1 to 3, right here in Johannesburg. Don't you long for this? For us to to fill up this meeting place, not with 50% capacity social distancing, but but full. Not because people are moving to Honey Ridge from other churches in the neighborhood, but because God is pleased to make us into such a fruitful family that sinners in our community are being saved and are being added to the body of Christ. Is that your prayer for Honey Ridge? Is that your heart for Johannesburg? Do you pray for revival? Do you pray for the salvation of the lost? Do you pray for the reaching of our children and families in our community? Do you pray about church planting and sending out missionaries and raising up evangelists and pastors from within our midst? Do we make these things a matter of priority in our praying? This is what the resurrection of Jesus accomplished. So the question is, are we partners with God in this expansion of his kingdom, or have we become idle, lazy bystanders to what God is doing despite us? Our calling as believers from this passage is to possess nations and inhabit the desolate cities. To bring the light of Jesus into a dark and desperate places and desolations of this world. That is our calling Are we that to Johannesburg? Are we that in our country? Are we that in our continent? Are we that to the nations of the world where Christ is not yet known? The first accomplishment of the resurrection is that God has promised to make his people into a fruitful family. A friend of mine as a pastor in Pretoria, he speaks about, he asked me the other day, he said, is Honey Ridge a life-giving church? It was a real probing question. Are we a fruitful family? Are we a church that brings life to its people and to our community? Or are we an inward-focused church that just sucks up everything for ourselves and slowly shrivels away and dies? God has called us to be a fruitful family. Secondly, we see that another accomplishment of the resurrection is a restored marriage in verses 4 to 10. And in this second image, God considers what is one of the saddest pictures in this life. It's the picture of a broken marriage. 
How we know from the whole Bible how much God values marriage and how the marriage relationship is meant to be a picture ultimately of Christ's most precious and deep, unbreakable covenant love with his church. And so when marriages break down, it it deeply grieves the heart of God. And, And we know that God desires nothing more than for a godly man and a godly woman to seek restoration in their marriage. Well, that's the picture here that God uses to reveal to his people another wonderful result of the suffering servant's resurrection, which is a restored marriage relationship with himself. Look at verse 4. Fear not, he says, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my chesed, my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. What a wonderful comfort and and assurance this is to us as believers today of this unshakable permanence of God's love for his people. The picture here before us is actually two pictures, both which have the effect of ending a marriage, divorce and widowhood, both which in the Old Testament times came with significant shame and disadvantage for the woman. Now, for us to understand the comfort that is being offered in this passage, we first need to realize the the desperately hopeless situation in which God's people found themselves. And And so for this, I'm going to just quickly jump to Jeremiah chapter 36. Sorry, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, uh, and, and reading from verse 6 to 10. Listen to what God says. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? I thought after she's done all of this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Speaking about captivity by the Assyrians into exile. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. So that's the the spiritual adultery of the nation of Israel and Judah against the Lord. 
and, and this divorce, this decree of divorce that God issued to, to Israel and Judah by sending them off into captivity. Now here God comes to his people and he says they must not fear for they will not be shamed through divorce nor suffer reproach through widowhood for God himself, the maker of the, the universe, he is their husband, he is their redeemer. God reminds them here in verse 7 that their time of of brief separation was as a result of their sinfulness in order for them to recognize the consequences of their rejection of God. Look at the contrast here. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. The separation for their sin was brief. Only a moment, says God, but the love for them, because of the work of the suffering servant, they will be loved with an everlasting love, and they will be part of his compassionate care forever. So in these verses, we have really a prophetic insight into the relationship between Jesus and every true believer. No matter what our past, no matter how much we have failed Jesus in terms of spiritual adultery, we've been unfaithful to him, his love is everlasting and his compassion never fails. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, for the church, that is us, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So that is the second result of the resurrection of Jesus, an everlasting marriage of love between the God of the universe and his people in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third accomplishment of the resurrection is seen in verses 11 to 17, namely a resplendent city. Now what we have here is a a wonderful picture of permanence and security which is such a contrast to what God's people were currently experiencing, having been conquered by the nations around them, ultimately taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians as they were carted off into exile. And notice how graciously God addresses his people in the state of exile and then promises them a glory and a permanence which this world can never, ever offer. No matter how successful any individual or any nation may become, what we read of here will never be found on this side of eternity. Look at verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near to you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. 
Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises up against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Now this whole section is a picture of extravagant wealth and security. A city for God's people where the foundations and the walls are made from every kind of precious jewel and God himself is the one who fights their battles. This is the picture which the Apostle John expands on at the very end of the Bible in, in the book of Revelation to tell us that this is the new Jerusalem. This city is, is the new Jerusalem which will descend out of heaven when Jesus Christ returns. And John wants us to see that, that this glorious heavenly city with, with all its splendor, with all its beauty, is actually the church of Jesus Christ. How this challenges our very low view of the church. And to our shame, for one of the incredible accomplishments of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection is the glory and the beauty and the perfection of the bride of Christ, the church. Revelation 21 verse 9 says, Then one of the seven angels spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we know we're talking about the church, which is the bride of Christ. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me, what did he show me? The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Not only is the splendor and the security of the church guaranteed because of the cross and the resurrection. But Isaiah wants us to see something very important about what Jesus accomplished for us as the inhabitants of this heavenly city. Look at verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. One of the great blessings of the new covenant, one of the great accomplishments of the new covenant, of the salvation which Jesus procured on the cross, is a personal relationship of peace for every member of this city with God through our knowledge of him. It says all the inhabitants of this city will be taught by the Lord and they will know this peace of God which surpasses all human understanding. If you are a child of God today, you are a member, not just of the Honey Ridge Baptist Church, but of this heavenly city, which is represented locally here in this body of believers at Honey Ridge. And there is great joy and great security and great splendor in that. But you are also in a personal relationship with God. He teaches you directly 
individually by His Holy Spirit through His Word. And with that comes the greatest of peace, which this world can never comprehend. So I want to ask you today, do you have this security and do you have this peace with God today? Would you say that 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 characterizes who you are? If not, let me ask you this. What is your view of the church? Do you really see the church? And let's not speak generally. Do you really see the Honey Ridge Baptist Church as the glorious bride of Christ Yes, busy being purified, busy being beautified for that day when we will be presented without spot or blemish to Jesus as our bridegroom. Does this high and glorious view of the local church feature in your thinking, in your priorities, in your allocation of of time and, and money? in your planning for the future? What role does the church play in your plans for your future? Or do you view the church as something of personal convenience? Get what you can out of it for this season of life, and when you no longer are benefiting, you'll discard it for something else down the road. According to Isaiah, according to John in Revelation, there is nothing better on this earth than the local church. The church is the apple of God's eye, the bride being prepared for her bridegroom. Our attitude to the church reveals a lot about our attitude to the bridegroom. He is the head of this body. You claim to be a Christian, if you claim to love Jesus, but you do not love the church, I'm not talking about loving our new interior decorating. I'm talking about everyone sitting around you, the people. We are the church. You do not love the church which Jesus Christ bought with his own blood and made you through his resurrection to be an integral member of this body, to find peace and security and the knowledge of God within it, then something is very wrong. Jesus Christ accomplished in his suffering and death and resurrection. He accomplished the security and the peace and the protection of his glorious bride. Yes, a work in progress. No doubts about that. But we are his glorious bride headed for that marriage feast of the Lamb. And we do a great dishonor to Jesus Christ when we live our lives in this world as if the church doesn't really matter. Well, there we have three things that God wants us to know are the results of the resurrection. So if someone came up to you at work or school or university and said to you, hey, you're a Christian, so you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? What difference does that make to your life? Would you be able to immediately and boldly declare that because Jesus lives and reigns, you are a member of God's fruitful family. Your relationship with God in the context of the local church is a beautiful marriage, and you are a citizen of a resplendent city. If not, then something is wrong. And you might possibly not yet be a Christian. 
And I want you to see today that if that is you, if you're wrestling with, with who you are, your identity, are you really saved, are you not saved, what does it mean to be a Christian, or are you one foot in the world, one foot in the church, I want you to see today that God is not satisfied with you being unsure of your relationship with him. Unsure of who you are, unsure of what you believe. He wants you to know for certain that you are part of his bride. So let me close our service by reading on into chapter 55. Please follow with me. Just going to read it and then we'll close in prayer. I want you to see as I read it God's invitation to the needy to come. His call to repentance if, if that is where you find yourself today and his promise of great blessing. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindness of David. David, by the way, he was long dead. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of Jesus and what he has done. Since I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, so you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you will run to you, for the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. He has the appeal, seek the Lord while he may be found, call to him while he is near, let the wicked one abandon his way, and the sinful one his thoughts, there's repentance, and let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. How? Back to Isaiah 53, if you're not sure. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout, providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. What is that? Well, look at this wonderful blessing found for those who respond to this call and repent. You will indeed go out with joy. And peacefully, be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. Well, I pray that all of us would respond with great uh, thanksgiving to God for this way of salvation that he has made available to us through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would desire nothing more than to be part of what God is doing among his bride here at Honey Ridge uh, as we seek to be his light in our city. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord God, we thank you again today for your word, this portion of scripture written 700 years before the events of that first Easter. And we can look back 2,000 years later 
and see that everything that you have promised is busy being fulfilled in us as your bride, the church. And so we look forward to the final fulfillment of that when Jesus Christ returns, when the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, descends from heaven, perfect for that marriage feast of the Lamb. Oh Lord, we thank you for all that you have done to bring us into this glorious inheritance and future. Forgive us for being so earthly minded, so caught up and distracted by the things of this world and the deceitfulness of sin. May we come running to you today while you may be found. And may we know this great blessing that you have spoken of in this portion of being part of a fruitful family, being in this wonderfully restored marriage and being a citizen of this resplendent city. May that change the way we live every day of our lives here in Johannesburg. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.